to the Cybos Insider podcast, where we debate and discuss the issues that matter to the future of finance. In each episode, we talk to the people shaping markets, investing and business, and highlight the trends driving innovation and inclusion to recharge global finance. In this podcast, we'll be focusing on digital acceleration and discussing its impact on financial services. I'm pleased to be joined by two senior analysts from advisory firm IT Novarica, whose research has looked closely at how levels of automation and technology have affected cash management and securities. And I'll be asking our experts how these developments can bring the industry closer to next generation banking. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Enrico Camaronelli. Hello. And Vinod Jane from IT Novarica. Hello, everyone. Welcome to you both. So before we get started, I'm delighted to announce that both Vinod and Enrico will be hosting a deep dive session at this year's Cybos entitled Digital Assets, Prospects and Questions to Adopt. And I believe that will be held on Wednesday, the third day of Cybos, October the 13th. But please do check the programme closer to the events, confirm the start time for your region. Well, back to the matter in hand today. Enrico, I'd like to ask you some questions first of all, and these come from a cash management and payments focus. Then I'd like to bring in Vinod and we'll focus more on securities. First of all, let's turn our attention to decentralized finance or DeFi as the abbreviation is known. Why is there such increasing attention on decentralized finance? Thank you, It's, uh, it's a good opening question. Well, decentralized finance, you know, stands as an opposition to centralized finance, which is what we are experiencing today. A big bank or a big entity and institution standing and concentrating all activities and basically dictating the rules uh, rules of engagement. Um, this, there's nothing wrong with this, of course, and actually regulators like this, a centralized view. Um, but the, the fact is that there are the centralization of finance brings also bottlenecks, uh, delays, um, excessive costs. And uh, when all the world is moving to real time, having these in the bottlenecks really doesn't help. So the notion of decentralized finance is to operate basically say financial supply chain operations like payments, lending, borrowing, investing in a way that it really happens on a peer-to-peer fashion. So the underlying uh, technology is based on blockchain protocols, typically Ethereum. And the promise of uh, DeFi is to allow uh, entities that operate on this network to transact one with another without any central control. Of course, you do have a sort of governance structure because everything is based and somehow controlled by smart contracts. So in this case, it's like an autonomous uh, entity that operates based on rules that have been set and based on triggers, these uh, smart contracts that are nothing else than software applications operate and execute based on the rules that they are given. So while the execution of, of these processes is performed in autonomously, of course, we we'll still fortunately need humans and sort of regulators behind to make sure that the smart contracts are properly written, that they follow you know, specific rules, and I would say from my research, the most interesting and appealing factor of decentralized finance, this you know, sense of being uh, all equal, 
might be compelling to some sort of you know fanatics somehow of, of blockchain. What I think that uh, DeFi has brought, particularly with interest, is the notion of stable coins. So the fact that in DeFi all the transactions happen using cryptocurrency, so basically representations of value that are exchanged using cryptographic algorithms, uh, and, and cryptocurrency uh, has a uh, negative connotation many times because the cryptocurrencies that we know like bitcoins they are subject to volatility and of course if you're running banking operations you don't want to have that volatility so stable coins that are also basically you know, regulated through smart contracts and, and software applications basically are uh, ensure a, a parity a sort of one one parity with fiat currencies or with any kind of assets you want to use as uh, collaterals for that particular currency. So just to summarize and finish <laughs> my, my answer, uh, long answer to your short question, uh, the interest of DeFi is because first of all, it introduces a new, let's say, set of technology protocols, i.e. blockchain, and then the possibility to exchange value uh, using stable coins that uh, offset the risk of uh, using cryptocurrencies that are subject to volatility. Um, and so many activities, of course, in this case, being totally automated, reduce the cost, reduce the need of having the intermediaries that uh, inevitably uh, uh, delay you know, the whole process and increase the costs. While with DeFi, it's really a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. So, of course, you will have to pay for some transaction fees, but they are a fraction of what you would normally pay in a more centralized uh, architecture. So it's all about speed and frictionless payments, it seems. You touched on the volatility of cryptos, but is it a little bit too risky to use cryptocurrencies for cash management operations? Well, again, it depends on the, the connotation you give to cryptocurrency, uh, because by definition, as I said before, a cryptocurrency is basically a representation of value that is exchanged digitally using cryptographic algorithms. So cryptography should ensure the total security of these transactions. The point is that cryptocurrencies started to be used uh, as soon as, say, blockchain was invented. Actually, the first you know, blockchain protocol is Bitcoin that was basically invented and created to exchange a cryptocurrency known as Bitcoin. Um, and uh, so cryptocurrency, the term has now gotten the sort of the, the connotation that it's something volatile, risky, uh, subject to speculations. Of course, those who want to like, you know, speculating they enjoy investing in, in bitcoins or any kind and a kind of uh, cryptocurrency but in reality you know just thinking of um, DeFi and stable coins also stable coins are cryptocurrencies by nature but they have this you know nature of being more stabilized so having the typical fluctuations you would have in any fiat currency you know, when you consider a euro dollar or sterling you know yen exchanges there are minimal fluctuations so the, the fact that using cryptocurrencies in, in cash management again cryptocurrencies with the notion of being stable stabilized it increases enormously the execution of payments the possibility of really using virtual accounts uh, executing especially cross-border payments they are the first to benefit from the possibility of running on blockchain protocols these peer-to-peer -peer transactions so you don't have any intermediaries, you don't have any delays. Uh, of course, you know, use with caution. So the, the reason why I think that cryptocurrencies are not too risky to use for cash management is because first of all, uh, 
you know, treasury managers must realize that a cryptocurrency per se is not a negative term. It depends on how it's used, of course, but uh, the underlying technology allows really to get significant benefits. Also in areas like trade finance, where you, you can use, uh, in this case, digital tokens, digital representations of letters of credit, invoices, certificates of origin, bills of lading, they all run on the same infrastructure. Okay, thank you, Enrico. I'd like to bring in Vinod now, and perhaps we can go to more of a securities focus. What are the operating models of moving securities over distributed ledger technology platforms? Thank you, Brett. Uh, so it's a wonderful question to ask for, and I think the way which I could look at it is, and going back to what's existing today, we have the public market and the private market. So traditionally in the public market, the securities are more liquid and the investors have more access to those liquid securities via various stock exchanges and the brokerage and the custody platforms. On the other side, we have the private equity market or the private market wherein the securities are less liquid. And on the other side, also the investors in the private equity market, they are better on the high value investors, I would say. What's DLT are bringing up is it's breaking that barrier of the public market and private market, wherein the, the retail investors can actually invest into any kind of a securities, whether it's liquid or illiquid security. And you did mention about the various operating models uh, around the distributed ledger technology. So the distributed ledger technology would mean that the record of the securities, it's distributed. The ledger is, is available at the same time to everyone for access. So let's look at the, how the securities could be accessed or could be moved over the various DLT platforms. The first one is the regular securities, which are available today in the dematerialized form or the physical form. And they're either held with a custody bank or a bank where you have access to your records of the securities. Now on the DLT platform, major, primarily the securities can be moved by having an asset-backed securities. That means the securities does exist on the DLT platform, but they are backed by an actual physical securities lying somewhere else. So that means it's like a one is to one ratio between the securities which are existing in the real world and they are being moved virtually on the DLT platform. The other kind of securities are the digitally native securities, which means that the securities are issued, processed, serviced only on the blockchain. There's no other representation of those securities lying anywhere else. So if you look at these various forms of securities, so we have three forms, the regular securities, which do exist today, the asset-backed securities, which is a one-to-one -one representation of the securities on the DLT platform. And the third one is the digitalized or native securities, which only exist on the blockchain. Now, the operating model would mean that we have to move the securities across the various models which exist over here. So how would you move the securities? You can move today the securities from a one custody bank to another custody bank by various messaging interfaces which are used. But the movement of the securities on the asset-backed securities would mean that if you move a security from a one blockchain or from one account to another account, that means the ownership also has to be transferred on the real world side, wherein the ownership gets transferred from person A to person B. On the other side, when you move the securities purely which are native to blockchain, that means the whole account structure has to be only existing on the blockchain itself. So the securities would move between the two counterparties only on the blockchain. 
So I think those are the three operating models which we see coming up over there. Okay, so talking now about new platforms, how would you view the post-trade securities processing model evolving between current and new platforms? Yeah, I think if we look at the various models which are upcoming, the whole aspects of the securities uh, movement or the DLT mo movement, it cannot stand alone by itself. You cannot just have a free of payment securities or received uh, uh, versus payment uh, securities. I think they have to be have a securities movement and a cash movement both goes hand in hand. And I think that's where what Enrico mentioned about stable coins is another aspect wherein if you move the securities on one side, there are various cash currencies which are available. And those could be the regular cash, which is being existing today, or the stable coins, which is backed by a fiat uh, currency or any other assets. Or it could be a central bank digital currency, or also it could be a cryptocurrencies. So now on the cash side, we have four options, cash, stable coins, CBDC, and cryptocurrency. On the security side, we have the regular securities, the ones which are asset-backed securities, and the third one is the digitally native securities. So if we look at all this movement of the cash and the securities, you get a big structure of a three by four metrics. So that means 12 possible combinations wherein you could move the securities and the cash around it. Now, if you combine this one, also looks at all the aspects of what existing today in the real world over there. So if I look at the aspects of the securities processing side of it, if we need to process the securities, what it would mean, the first step is to set up the securities in the securities master. Today, the real securities, I can put up an ISIN number and create a security. I can also create a security using a dummy ISIN number. So it gives me a structure to create a securities in the securities master, which I can get, go outside, have a valuation number or a market price associated with it, and use those market price to close the books on a daily basis. One thing which comes across is if the securities are being created on the blockchain, how would I create the securities? Let's take an example of the asset-backed securities. So that means for one security, we would have to now to create two securities. One, which is the representation of the real world. And second, the representation of the securities which exist only on the DLT platform. Now, somewhere down the line, the magic needs to happen within the securities master to identify that both the securities which are existing are the same securities. But the identifiers may be same or may not be the same on this. Let's look at the other aspect of the digitally native securities, which means that the securities only exist on the blockchain. And again, they would have to have the various identifiers to ensure that where the securities are being issued. The issuance of the securities is also associated with the primary exchanges where they are listed. How would the listing take place in terms of identifying where the securities are being traded? So the whole aspect of securities master thing, that would change in that process. Next is the usage of those securities in the various transactions being identified. If a trade is being executed today, you would have the various ticker symbols which are used to process a trade. Now the ticker symbol would have a relationship back to an ISIN, QSIP or a CIDOL securities master. And the, similarly, the relationship of the securities which are being traded over the blockchain would have a relationship back to the various securities identifiers to match up or to convert the identifiers to a securities uh, which is used for the back office processing. Next, which comes is the daily securities positions and the transactions valuation numbers associated. That would mean that the securities which are being held on the various blockchain or the DLT platforms would have to be valued. And they have to be valued using the various uh, market prices which are being used. 
after the securities are being valued in the books, even if the securities are sitting idle in the account, the new models of how do you benefit or the equivalence of the securities lending platform, that would be another aspect which would be coming into the picture. Wherein how would you move the securities or the securities which are lying idle on the DLT platform, how could you benefit it by lending those securities to another account within the same blockchain? So I think those aspects of the whole securities lifecycle processing would change. And the way which we look at it currently is there will be two worlds of post-trade which will be coming up. One world, which is the current world, wherein everybody is trying to make the current world better, cheaper, faster, with respect to the T plus one settlements or having more efficiency in the entire process. And the second post-trade world would be the one wherein all the securities and the cash are moving over the DLT platform. And somewhere down the line, both the current world and the DLT world would have a bridge wherein the securities and the cash could move across the two worlds. Thank you, Vinod. That's interesting. And I noticed way back there, you talked about central bank digital currencies, and I'll use that as an excuse to talk to, to Enrico again. Um, Enrico, after all the experiments and trials of CBDCs, it seems like they could be doomed to fail. Is that true, do you think? No, I, I don't think that CBDCs will will fail, although there are you know some who are sort of preaching, <laughs> sort of putting nails in the coffin uh, of CBDCs because actually they tend to have a quite a disruptive impact on, on overall, especially central bank businesses and on the financial institutions themselves, because conceptually, a central bank digital currency is Again, a digital currency that can be issued by a central bank directly to the end user. Uh, so really removing all the intermediaries. And uh, let's say the, the digital dollar or the digital euro that comes from a central bank is much more secure, let's say much less costly than the similar uh, euro or dollar coming from a financial institution. So the big concern of the regulators themselves, uh, of the financial institutions, well, when the world started speaking about CBDCs is, you know, this is going to disrupt the entire financial industry. Even if uh, technically this would be possible, that's most likely not going to happen. So banks, institutions will still hold the role of the intermediary. So uh, the central banks are going to basically lend or, you know, exchange digital currencies with these uh, financial institutions who on their own are going to you know play the role they always have played as intermediaries with the with the end users but in any case the role of cbdc's will be certainly much more valuable because again it will speed up many activities it will have the positive and also negative aspect of giving total visibility of where that coin, digital coin is in the process. So, you know, if you think from uh, the regulator's perspective, that would be a positive thing because think, for instance, we had the recent experience of the pandemic where central governments were basically pushing liquidity into the market. Now, how do you know if that money is going really to the, you know, to, to the proper recipients? Today, you don't have that evidence. With uh, central bank digital currencies, you could really track every single currency and so, of course, you know, those who are very much protective of their privacy would have some, uh, would argue about the, the value of this. But on the other end, if you are an enterprise and you know that you are, especially you are a small and medium enterprise, and you know that you are supposed to receive 
that funding, that financial relief, well, then you are able to see where the money is, when it's going to come. And if it didn't arrive, you will be able you know, to claim that it has not come without having to you know, <laughs> go to, uh, across too many disputes. So uh, I would say when governments start to speak about this, uh, there is also, also in the US, there is a big push against uh, the notion of digital currencies. But I believe because the US market is less regulated if you consider it, you know, as opposed to what ha happens in Europe, for instance. So in Europe, we have the financial sector has learned that regulators also can help if you really want to harmonize and speed up the execution of things and maybe sometimes make it happen, you know, because it's just a regulator pushes it. And so I think that at the end, central bank digital currencies with, say, some adaptations to what the technology would allow to do, uh, so having some intermediaries, having still some human intervention will eventually be there and, and work. Can we go into a little bit more detail about blockchain and its role in what makes it so special in cash management? I've been doing some research on enterprise blockchain. So really moving away from the nitty gritty cryptocurrency debate and rather looking at what it means for banks on one side and enterprises on the other. And just like as I said before, crypt the cryptocurrency term holds a negative connotation sometimes or sort of you know, has different interpretations. Uh, blockchain has the same <laughs> sort of uh, suffers from, from the same uh, you know, destiny. So many still confuse blockchain with bitcoins, i.e. volatility, speculation. Some argue also why should we need blockchain when we have non-blockchain technologies that serve the, the same purpose. And this is a fair objection. But if you're looking from a cash management perspective, because I understand that was your question, well, there are, let's say, two levels uh, to look at blockchain or the use of blockchain. The first level, which we can call, let's say, blockchain 1.0, which is the usual you know, way that blockchain is being considered these days, is like a special database. So something that allows you know, to keep data secure, um, non-repudiation, you know, all, all the things that we know about blockchain. And of course, in that case, the, the, the argument that there are non-blockchain technologies that serve the same purpose are, are fair. So the point is that you have to find out which parts of the data need to be put on blockchain and which instead can remain on more traditional databases. But once you have introduced blockchain in, in an organization, then you can really start thinking of, let's say, the blockchain 2.0, so we've been speaking about cryptocurrencies, digital currencies, using uh, crypto for securities. So that is where you can represent digitally an asset, a value, and you can exchange it on a network. Now, you might do this in a non-blockchain environment, but the levels of security, the levels of complexity would be too high. So that's where blockchain protocols make things much easier and much more transparent and fluid. So as long as we remain at the 1.0 blockchain, maybe from a cash management perspective, it doesn't make a big difference. But when you introduce that, then you are already ready and prepared for the 2.0, which is already taking place. And if you, if you are a corporate treasurer, you're just, for instance, being able to ensure that an invoice is unique, is not being duplicated, or that a certificate of origin or, or a, a bill of lading against which you want to have a discount, you want to present to a factor. All those things on blockchain can be much more rapid and much more easily managed. I'd like to bring Vinod back in here again, and we'll head back to uh, DLT. What are the top three considerations that you see for DLT adoptions? 
think if I look at it in summary, I think the answer comes down to is business case, business case, business case. So yeah, I think that's well, that's one way of looking at it. Absolutely, I think all these initiatives needs to have a very solid business case uh, to back the investments and the benefits which coming out of that. I think if I look at the other options of what are the various adoption model of PLT being adopted or which we have seen, I think I can, I was just thinking about it. And I think there are three use cases which, uh, uh, which can come up. The first one is the model which is adopted by SIX and they have created a whole SDX entity by itself. So it's like a whole fresh new startup uh, DLT platform or a custody platform by itself, end-to-end -end service provider of everything. The next one, which we have seen is the migration effort, wherein the Australian Stock Exchange migrated their chess platform to a new DLT platform. And the third one, which we have seen it is the model adopted by DTCC, wherein you bring efficiency to the existing model and have a small uh, the project Whitney and project IONS on the side which to test the proof of concept and then integrate those with the mainstream uh, platforms. I think those are three models which we have seen. Either one could be a startup model or model which is some whole migration model. That means you replace existing systems with the new one or you bring an efficiency in the existing platform by having a small proof of concept on the side and then integrate it with the mainstream DLT platform. On the other side, when we look at the adoption model uh, from a business case perspective, the whole aspects of moving the securities over blockchain much efficient, much faster, also gets netted out, also gets on the other side is the benefit which come out from a netting of securities at a central clearinghouse. And I think the industry has seen a huge amount of netting benefit. Just to quote in one of the examples, it's almost like around 1.3 trillion worth of securities obligations are created on a daily basis. And the securities which are actually moved is only around $19.8 billion worth of securities. And to move those securities, you only have a collateral of around $7.3 billion of securities. So if you look at the aspects of the netting benefits that's huge in the securities world. So the scalability factor of adopting a DLT platform to move the securities much sooner, much faster. I think those are the things which needs to be considered that how the cost benefit analysis would work out and what's benefit for the investment firm to identify the real use case where it could be, where it could adopt the DLT platform. I think the next question also comes around these two more aspects of this. One is to find the right talent availability of the members who would be able to create those new platforms or the new technology integrations. I think one of the things which we have seen is, is the new talent who comes in, they would directly work on the blockchain platforms or the DLT platforms. And once they are finished with that, they want to move on to the next one. There's no next one available. It's, it's, this is the platform which you have to adopt it and the ability to sustain that platform for the years to come. And I think that's where the challenge is. If you have seen traditionally why some of the systems are the way they are, they are there for a reason. It's not that you can just go overnight magic and say that, oh, I want to replace this uh, old legacy system into something which impacts the, all of industry. No, it doesn't happen that way. I think the adoption of those securities are new, but then the continuity of those resources to ensure that those new platforms can be maintained over a period of time 
that's the critical challenge. And on top of it, when you want to maintain it over a period of time, there would be ups and downs of market which would be coming up. And that's where the real test would come up because you can never anticipate the market downsides or the upside or the events which will trigger or test those systems to identify that how resilient those systems are to ensure that the blockchain or the DLT platform can sustain those models. I think we are right now we are seeing those benefits of the DLT in isolations, but I think having those tested with the market events to a larger extent, I think that's where the real challenge uh, uh, would be. But having said that, I think on the other side, what we're looking at is if not the DLT platform, what's next to it? I think there's nothing else which is available right now to ensure that the other side is the bringing efficiency to the existing model over here. So here's the new platform which is available for the industry to test it. And I think that's what we are seeing in the various use cases or the various adoption models which are being uh, backed by various firms to ensure that this model can be tested. Yes, absolutely. The scalability factor would evolve over a period of time, but this is a good option available. So I think everybody should look forward for the adoption in some form or the other which suits their business models. Thank you, Vino. Just going back to the start of your, your, your last uh, answer there, where we were asking about the top three considerations for DLT, and you said business, business, business. Talking about cost then, and processing maybe a trade settlement, would that be significantly reduced by a DLT adoption? Yeah, I think the industry has been trying to reduce the cost per trade, bringing it down to various efficiency, various integration models over a period of time. I think the amount of investment which uh, the industry has done in this aspect of bringing efficiency has been tremendous. But I think as we look at those, I think if I look at the whole graph over here, I think it will be a double up graph, wherein right now the cost of processing via efficiency is coming down, but the adoption of the DLT models will increase the cost of processing the securities. And I'm not saying that it will increase because of the adoption of DLT platform. I think it's because of the ecosystem which needs to be built around it, which needs to be ensured. I think what Enrico mentioned was the 1.0 to identify that what systems needs to be put onto the blockchain. And I think having that, and I think having that visibility and tying up to the blockchain 2.0 model, wherein which use cases would suit to which blockchain model over here. And I think that's where, if you look at from a firm's perspective, there could be multiple blockchains use cases within the firm. So the interoperability within the blockchain, or just to ensure that, how do you bring it all together at the end of it into a GL system? I think that's where the critical challenge would be. And that's why, even if you individually, you look at the, yes, I have moved the securities much sooner, faster, using the cryptocurrencies or stable coins, but there's existing real world, which is there. And I think, that bridge, which is between the two worlds, and I think that bridge would lead to an increase in the cost of processing for a period of time. Then eventually, once the bridge is more efficient, then the reduction of the cost benefit uh, would come down by adoption of DLT. Thank you. I'll ask you both, Enrico and Vinod, now to perhaps draw this to a bit of a conclusion. Digital acceleration is happening now and at pace, but do you think we kind of hit the level of velocity? Is it still going to go far and add us with all sorts of new innovations? Or do you think we've kind of got to a point where things need to stabilise and then we can really see change happen? Uh, allow me to take this first. Uh, you know, velocity for the sake of velocity doesn't necessarily bring all the benefits because you also must be able to react as soon as, you know, the, fastest, the faster you get the information, 
the faster you have to react. And what I'm hearing, for instance, on a completely, let's say, different area, but very close to, to this one. I mean, I'm doing a research on liquidity management, for instance, okay? So we're partially blockchain is being considered. Actually, some are falling more into Vinod's area of expertise, you know, looking at securities as a form of investing liquidity or utilizing excess of cash. But the point is that nowadays, liquidity management is all about real time, virtual accounts, instant payments. But the point is that, first of all, are, you know, the, the clients or our companies on the other side of the cable ready to execute as fast as the information getting in. And also regulators still play a significant role. So are you able to prove that the actions you're taking are you know, compliant with all the regulatory requirements needed? So I would say that there's still a lot of space for velocity because right now we're just looking at tiny fractions, uh, trade execution payments, but we know that the financial supply chain is much, much longer and still very much manually operated so there's still lots of room to streamline processes but the point is that let's not do that just for the sake of being fast because you know if you're driving fast but you haven't taken you haven't taken you know a driver's license to drive fast you risk of going crashing so uh, <laughs> be prudent of course don't stay always you know riding a bicycle when you can drive a car but uh stupid metaphor but i think it gives the sense you, you need to have visibility before you go fast. So visibility allows you to be, um, to have velocity. Excellent, thank you, Enrico. Vino, do you have some thoughts here? Sure, I think uh, if I look at the adoptions or, or what's upcoming uh, on, the, on the DLT side of it, I think the next three to four years would be crucial to identify and to really scale up the whole DLT blockchain uh, adoptions within the industry. I think uh, if I look at it, the last decade of it, it was more focused on the regulatory mandates, which was upcoming from various regulations over a period of time, just to make the whole system more transparent, efficient, look at the counterparty exposures aspects of it, have a risk, more of a robust risk management platform. That was all in response to the 2008 financial crisis. I think this has given the time now to see that what could the future unveil for the industry to identify that the next three to four years is really to scale up this model. Because if it doesn't scale up in the next three years, uh, then I think it will be difficult to prove that business cases again to make the investments after three years again. I think that's where the real challenge is. I think if I look at the aspects of uh, the students who are learning uh, right now in the, in the various universities, I think they have been taught all these new aspects of uh, coding and everything to make it more DLT and blockchain oriented. I think that wave of talent, which is upcoming in the industry is the one who would bring that radical change. If they succeed over here in making that happen, then the industry would transform definitely after 2025, completely in a new world altogether. And that would mean the whole textbooks, which has been written, they may get outdated and the new textbooks would have to be written to say that what's the new world would look like. It seems like we're heading for an interesting proving time over the next three to four years to create a solid business case. Interesting thoughts to take away. Thank you. And as I mentioned at the top of the programme, if you'd like to hear more from Vinod and Enrico, they'll be hosting a deep dive session at Cybos on October the 13th. And with that, I'll draw this discussion to a close and hope to catch up with you on the 13th. Thank you, Enrico Camarinelli. Thank you for inviting us. And Vino Jane. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.